Welcome to The Conversation, a podcast about educational technology, learning sciences, and instructional design. I hope you had a great spring break. This episode, we're going to be talking about standards and essential questions. But first, I'd like to introduce you to my guest for this episode. Please tell us a little bit about yourselves. Uh, my name is Emily, and I'm currently finishing up my last semester of grad school at Adelphi. Um, I'm working as a math intern within a school district right now, so that's really exciting. And I'm looking for jobs to hopefully have a full-time position as a math teacher in a classroom next year. My name is Ahati Shahinor, and you can call me Shahi as well. I'm from China, and I'm studying the educational technology at Delphi University now, and this is my second semester here. And I want to be a trainer in the future. That's why I want to learn this major. It's great to have both of you here. So far, we've laid the foundations of learning and understanding what it means to learn. And we also talked a little bit about technology integration and universal design. And this week, we're going to talk more about the instructional design process itself. And Emily, I thought your question, connecting it to universal design from last, last time, is a good segue into this topic. So why don't we start with that? Sure. I was When I was thinking about the readings from last week discussing UDL, mm-hmm. um, I was really thinking a lot about backwards design, and I know there was some discussion around differentiation as well. So my initial question was, how does UDL differ um, from UBD, which we've been talking about and reading about this week, and how are they similar if they're similar at all? That's a really good question, because they both really look similar. They even have the same abbreviations. So universal design is the set of tools that you think about as you design your curriculum. And as I mentioned in the podcast from last episode, the analogy of the buffet, where students get to pick the tools that they find most accessible for them and how they get into the information and resources and how they demonstrate understanding. So that's universal design or UDL. Understanding by design or UBD is an instructional design process And the process is also called backwards design, and backwards referring to how you begin your design process at the end instead of the beginning. So in other words, you think about the outcomes you want at the end of the unit and then plan backwards from there to make sure that students have a pathway towards it. So they definitely do overlap a lot because, for example, they both talk about assessment and what it means to have good assessment. And I guess that's a good thing about both of these is that they're not two separate things you have to do. We'll obviously talk more about this when we get to assessment. A good assessment will meet the standards of universal design and backwards design. So that's how I would differentiate the two. And I'm curious, Emily, since you mentioned backwards design in previous weeks, I was wondering, what do you know about backwards design before reading these chapters? I actually first heard about it in undergrad at Adelphi. I took a, it was a critical literacy in math and science education course, and we were required um, to plan. It was kind of like a mini unit because it was only about three to five lessons that we had to do. So it wasn't um, as big as a unit might be where there's 10 lessons or something of that nature. Um, But we were required to use the UBG template and to follow that and to have formulate essential questions and to kind of work through finding a goal with our backwards design. And um, so I thought that's the first place I ever really saw it. Um, And then I haven't seen it 
implemented as much in the classroom, but I don't know if that's because I'm not as big of a part as the curriculum builds um, as some of the other teachers or what they've already prepared for the year. But I definitely did have the opportunity to see it in undergrad. I was going to ask this as the preuding question for this week, but I'll ask it to you now, which is when you were in school, so let's say K-12, how aware were you of the instructional design of a particular lesson or unit that you were being presented as a student, just in terms of the different things that you now are asked to do as a teacher? If you think back on your experiences as a student, how aware were you of the existence of this larger picture? I'm just kind of curious. I feel like I definitely was not aware at all um, how much time, effort, planning like was put into a unit. Um, I think also in school, when I was in school, a lot of times every day, like I would take out my notebook, um, there would be an aim written in on like the dry erase or a chalkboard. Um, and we would go through, sometimes there would be a PowerPoint or something, or we would do problem sets. So I feel like I didn't necessarily see how a unit was designed or why we were doing things, maybe even in the order that we did them. Um, until I got into the field where I wanted to be in the position of the teacher. I agree with her. And also before before I studied in the China, I think I don't aware of this, how the unit be prepared like this. But after I studied in, in this technology, educational technology, I saw you how to design the course and how to design the unit. And I aware about it. And I think it is very important to design a unit Shai, do you mind telling us a little bit about what schools are like in China, what it feels like being a student in China, and how it might compare with the United States based on what you know? Because I think it's really helpful for us just to have an international perspective, but also because a lot of our students are international students and they come from many parts of the world, many of them from China. And it's very insightful, I think, if you would maybe illuminate us on some of these differences that you've noticed. I think the United States education tells students that learning is their own business. Let the students think for themselves what they want to learn. As a result, students usually learn actively, flexibly, and happily. However, Chinese education always requires students to make detailed and complicated regulations in advance. What to learn, how much to learn, when to learn, how to learn, and so on. So Chinese students regard learning as utilitarian so they are used to dealing with it. Learning is to find a job for promotion and wealth, and learning becomes passive and helpless. And the United States attacks great importance to the cultivation of students' creativity. They think it is necessary to cultivate creative thinking when children are young. However, Chinese education pays attention to the basic skills rather than the cultivation of students' creativity and thinking ability. And Chinese education is good at giving students a summary to teach students without problems. And American education is good at giving students an inspiration, teaching students to constantly ask new questions. And also in China, the Chinese class to raise their hands to speak and in the United States class to encourage free speech. And I remember when I was in high school, there is more than 60 students in one classroom in China. Wow. 
I always find that really fascinating as well because here in the United States, we often talk about class size and how to reduce it. And it's interesting to see how other parts of the world have to deal with it and they're dealing with a much larger class size. So anyway, thanks for sharing that. And why don't we start with some of the questions you have? Sure. Um, so I just wanted to kind of get the idea of what the best practice would be to unpack the standards in order for teachers to be able to know exactly what they should pull um, from those standards that might be too big and not leave anything important out that their students should really be taking um, advantage of and learning in the classroom. I'm guessing the best practices would depend on the teacher and the topic. The authors do provide their version of it, which is on page 64, where they talk about how to unpack the standards. I'm not sure it is ideal for everyone or every subject area. And I think the authors would also say, certainly implicitly, if not explicitly, that the standards shouldn't be too much of a focus on how you design a unit, although that is probably easier said than done because there is a lot of focus on standards and as as I'm sure you have experienced. They've really just become such a large part of the curriculum over especially the past four years within mathematics uh, since that is my field and there's constantly a change. I know they're saying up and coming in 2022 they're going to be implementing a new set of standards as well. However, in the reading, it discusses that there's an overload of these standards, and that's on page 60 in the Gaining Clarity reading, Gaining Clarity on Our Goals. And um, some of these standards are either too big or too small. So what I was starting to think about is when the standards are too narrow, we do run the risk of trapping students in Bloom's basement, meaning that we run the risk of having students just continuously memorize. Um, however, UBD says we can avoid this by pulling out core ideas from these standards. I think the authors make a really good point about the importance of unpacking the standards which means looking at them as a whole and then identifying the big ideas. Because otherwise, as they have mentioned, there are these standards and some of these have subsections and then benchmarks and you can end up with thousands of possible configurations and there's no way you can meaningfully address all of them in any given year. I think what they suggest, which is to look at them and then pull out the larger or what they call the big ideas, is really important to help you figure out what to prioritize. I know standards is a big concern here in the United States, and I was wondering, what are the regional or national standards that exist in China, and, and what do they look like? Do you know? We have standards in China, and also we have the nine-year compulsory education standards in China, and also their discipline and the specialty and the curriculum system standards, including teaching materials and other standards. And also we have standards for the for the construction of the teaching staff and including the school head and the complication standards, qualification standards and assessment standards for teachers. And also in some province, like in our Xinjiang, we have the national language standards, like including the national general ethic minorities, special language standards, and language information standards. So these are some different standards in China. 
I mean, certainly standards are really important because they help give you a guidance, but they shouldn't become the only thing you focus on. I think that's always really challenging, especially if you feel really pressured by your school or by some other external force to focus on it. The author mentions that uh, unpacking contents on the page sixty-two and sixty-three, and Sometimes it's really hard to achieve all the goals we want without time and resources. It's a never-ending cycle. So is there any ways to stop this cycle? I think there's definitely a lot of pressure on teachers in classrooms to reach all of these goals. However, there is, like it says, limited time and resources. For example, even in the winter, there are snow days. So then you might lose some days of instruction or maybe the standards are a little bit new. Um, so it's hard to unpack contents when you're not sure when there hasn't been sort of something, some sort of a basis set up prior to. So the resources might be minimal. So I think that a way to kind of stop it is maybe if administrators kind of took a look at the standards in a way and helped the teachers unpack what would be the most important within their curriculum design. And I know there's curriculum design teams that they have at schools, and I know specifically at my school they do as well. Um, but I know sometimes it's very difficult to be able to unpack every single subject's content um, before the teachers have a chance to. So I don't know if that would be able to stop it, but it might be something that could minimize how it works. Yeah, and that's why it's so many of the readings that we've read so far stress the importance of having these larger ideas. If you remember the first reading, we talked about having this organizing principle that experts have. And then in this reading, it talks about the big ideas and the prioritizing framework to help help you decide what are the things that you should focus on. And also the prioritize, the prioritizing framework is interesting, but do you think that teachers follow these priorities? I think that to a certain extent uh, that teachers do follow the priorities in prioritizing framework. And I think it kind of goes hand in hand with the question you asked about unpacking content and stopping that cycle. Um, I think the more and more that teachers, if they were to follow this more, because um, I know that a lot, I think a lot of the newer teachers, um, there's a lot of pressure put on things framework like this. Um, and I think some of the older teachers, maybe they're a little bit set in their ways and they don't necessarily want to change to the standards or whatever is necessary for them to do. Um, so I think that teachers should follow it more. I think there are teachers that do follow it, but I do think that it's very beneficial um, to have some sort of a framework to set yourself up with. I really like the prioritizing framework myself as well with the concentric circles. And I think it might be a good idea to even to have the graphic in front of you as you design your unit to make sure that you're focusing on the right areas and that there's an even spread in your unit so that you don't have things that are interesting but not essential for students to know and that you're addressing more of the core ideas. Going back to the big ideas that you were kind of discussing a little bit before, um, what would be the best way to really communicate the big ideas in a clear and understandable way that's meaningful for students? They give the advice of making sure that the essential questions are framed in simple language, and I think that's a good advice as a starting point, and then making sure that the questions are not 
questions that only a teacher would ask, but actually questions that people in the real world ask, people in the field of study, and then making sure that this is carried throughout the unit so that it's actually addressed and not just kind of ignored afterwards. I think also this is importance of having a challenging task to be developed because the authentic challenges involve realistic situations and where context of the task is as faithful as possible to real-world opportunities and difficulties. Do you mean how much the test or assessment is related to the real world? Uh, yes. That's a good point, and we'll talk about assessments next week. Ideally, teachers will have control over the type of assessments they do and that it can be tied to some, some authentic context, whereas if it's a state test or something, then you have less control and, and that connection might be broken. And that's why it's important to have these big ideas so that these students are able to transfer their learning from what they learned in school to the assessment context, regardless of whether it's coming from the teacher or the state. I think it's some like there are definitely certain topics that it's very difficult to think of a big idea and connect it back. And I think maybe that's where you kind of make sure I think that's where that backwards design really could be more helpful. Because um, I know, for example, in my student teaching, a lot of times the curriculum is already set and the teacher is like, OK, just make a lesson on polynomial division. Right. Or something of that nature. And then for me, because I haven't seen how the curriculum is designed or something of that nature, I didn't really know what big idea would be best to help my students. Mm -hmm. So I think although there may, there might be a big idea for everything, I think there are definitely uh, difficult difficulties in finding all of those big ideas. But yeah. What, what is polynomial division? So instead of doing long division uh -huh. um, with numbers, so if you had like 137 and then divided by two, just something like that, you now have something where you would have like x to the third minus 2x plus one, and you would be dividing that by x minus two. So now you're taking some a polynomial and you're dividing it by a binomial and it can go up to anything. So it's just taking multiple terms and being able to divide them instead of just dividing numbers, which is a very difficult concept for my students to understand, especially some of my students that are in um, an algebra two, they're in their, a lab period. So it's a double period of math and they're a little bit weaker. So I think maybe having a bigger idea or connection for them would actually help them be able to understand it better because it is kind of a foreign concept. Well, presumably mathematics is still rooted in the real world in the sense that it's something that you're not just learning it for the fun of it. There's some kind of other thing down the road. And I was wondering if that could be something to draw them in. I think so. And I think too that the class that I was in, the teacher, she <laughs> showed them like a funny long division video that someone would probably show in an elementary school classroom <laughs> when they first learn how to do long division. And a lot of them were laughing. And I think that was a good connection because then they're able to see, oh, I've done long division before, so I'll be able to handle it. It's just going to be a little bit different. Mm -hmm. So I think making, I'm more used to making connections like that with their prior knowledge or their preconceptions and addressing those misconceptions rather than kind of thinking off the top of my head, well, what's the big umbrella idea? Not being a math person myself, I can see how it's a bit more tricky with math when it comes to the big ideas and the essential questions. Because beyond the basic arithmetic, there might be concepts that you do in a math class that you might not do again in the real world if you're, unless you're a math major. Like just off the top of my head, 
I remember learning about the square root in math class. I don't think I've ever used it since then, but it's very likely that I actually use it more often than I think. And the trick is to be able to identify those things and make those connections if you can. And if there are concepts that are important, but maybe not something that's useful in an everyday or kind of regular context, then it would be interesting to look at the standards again and see why are they important. Most likely, at least in the case of Matthew, building onto to something else. And so maybe that connection could be made more explicit to the students. Yeah, that's very true. I thought the, um, the rubric on the transfer demand was really helpful. And I was wondering what you both thought of it. I thought that it was nice because I think it was only four, right? Mm-hmm. Like four the, yeah, it was four levels. Um, and I was able to kind of connect the first level. Um, I thought that connected again to Bloom's basement. So the first mm-hmm. level is on page 80. So basically talking about if a task is presented uh, so that a student only needs to follow directions and use recall skills. Mm-hmm. Um, I was just kind of thinking about how is that actually beneficial? And I know we did have the discussion too last week about how it's beneficial to go through each level of blooms. However, Mm -hmm. you don't want to just stay Mm -hmm. in one specifically. Um, So I was kind of thinking about like, how can we be sure to also address two, three, and four um, and not just get stuck with one in our rubric? Were you able to make sense of this rubric? Because I was thinking it could potentially be confusing if you haven't designed an assessment or a unit before. Yeah, I'm a little bit confused about this. This actually relates to what you said earlier about assessments, tying to something authentic, because the whole idea of learning is that one day you're able to take what you've learned in the classroom and then apply it to contexts where you don't have a teacher beside you. So that's the idea of transfer. So for example, in level one, an assessment that is exactly word for word what you had been taught in class, that would be a level one where you can just look at the wording and finish the assessment. And that does not necessarily guarantee that you have learned what you should be learning, but maybe you just recognize this particular kind of problem. And then the further up you go on the levels, the less it is directly resembling of what you learned in class, even though they call for the same skills and knowledge that you should be able to do. And so ideally, the assessments should be designed with the fourth level in mind and not just word for word replicating what you did in class. So that's kind of what that rubric is for. And I think something interesting too is that I don't see a lot of that for in any of the classes that I'm in now. Yeah, those high level assessment tasks would be harder to design. And you still have to make sure students are able to get towards it so that you don't expose them to a level four kind of transfer assessment right away, and that you provide the necessary scaffolds. So another example in in educational technology is For example, we teach you how to use Audacity, or we have you use Audacity to complete certain assignments. And once you get into the real world, potentially there could be a time when you would be asked to do some audio editing and you may not have Audacity, but the idea behind it is the same for all of the audio editors. And so you should be able to transfer it and be able to complete the task if you did learn it properly. Yeah, I also found that uh, important point from this is that main challenge for learners is to find out what type of problem is it is from the information given and having recognized the requirements of the tasks 
the learner should be able to solve it according to now the procedure. Right. Yes, that would be the level four. Regarding essential questions, one of the questions that I was kind of thinking of is, how do you find the best balance between an accessible uh, but challenging essential question? Oh gosh, <laughs> it's a it's a hard question. I know. <laughs> I mean, I think a lot of it would come down to trial and error, and over time you experiment, you'll know what are good questions and what are less accessible questions, and just kind of going back to earlier what we talked about. And this was in the reading too, to make sure that you use simple language. So you know you don't hide it within some complicated technical language, but you make it accessible in that way. And then it it can be tied to the real world. It can be abstract and still be a very interesting essential question. So it is really hard, and that's why in unit plan you are graded on it. And so I wanted to make sure that you know what an essential question is, and that you're able to distinguish it from other kinds of questions. I think the reading called it teacherly questions. I definitely think I've had a lot more experience with essential questions now、um, in my fifth year of the step program.、Um, I just think that being in a classroom now and having multiple opportunities to create lesson plans and going through things like the Ed TPA, so my teacher certification exam for New York State, and being able to formulate a good essential question, I feel like they should be balanced between accessible and challenging, and they should really encompass everything that a student is going to learn within a unit, but. In a way that they can transfer outside of the classroom. So, if they're, for example, if they're learning a unit on maybe factoring or something within Algebra One, the essential question wouldn't necessarily be how do I factor, but it would be something that has has a little bit more of a transfer. So maybe since factoring is like breaking down elements、um, within a math problem, like you could think more along the lines of. Uh, what is the best way to break down a problem, or how do I know how to break down problems or situations? So something a little bit more overarching, I feel. When I reread this chapter a few months ago, before the beginning of the course, I decided to add my essential questions to the unit. So if you go to the syllabus, and you'll see the you'll see it divided into part one, part two, and part three, and each one is followed by one or two questions and. For me, those would be my essential questions for this course. So I don't know if that helps, and、um, and even if you think that I should adjust them. What about you, Shahi? What do you think of essential questions? Through the reading, I think that essential questions promote students' learning in many ways. First of all, essential questions are used to let students know that. Asking questions is an important part of learning. As students learn to be better questions, their learning becomes more meaningful and deeper,、uh, in intellectually. When teachers use essential questions, they will demonstrate this important skill to students and show them the types of questions they should ask themselves. And finally. The use of essential questions promotes inquiry, and students begin to want to learn the content that serves inquiry. Simply put, students want to learn the content so they can answer basic questions. And and I I was also kind of thinking that it's actually really hard to ask questions. I、yeah. I don't know <laughs> if you feel feel that way. It's easy to ask questions. It's hard to ask a good question. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and this is an important skill, not just for teachers, but just in general to be able to ask thoughtful questions that open up thinking. I've had a lot of times, I've heard my supervisor say it, um, and I've also had people tell me in different education courses that if you ask yes or no questions, it will really only warrant a yes or no answer, um, and there will be no further discussion based on whatever your question is. And I thought that this article kind of went in a different direction, saying that it was okay uh, to ask those yes and no questions. It shouldn't be something that's completely avoided, as I've kind of been told in uh, my education background. Um, so I was just, just trying to think about like, why has there been such a bad connotation connected to yes or no questions? And then what is the nature, like how, um, what is the nature of how teachers failed to follow up their questions? So basically mm-hmm. the yes or no question, could it be good as long as it's followed up, um, and provoke more thought? So that was the questions that I had. You said you were told that yes or no questions aren't as good. Was it in the context of them saying, as a teacher, you shouldn't ask your students those questions? Yes. So it was more along the lines of that, of saying you really shouldn't ask yes or no questions, and most of them should be Mm -hmm. open-ended. But I know in my own practice, I will occasionally, or probably more so than not, ask a yes or no question. Um, And if the student then says yes, I will always follow up and say, okay, you're saying yes, but what if a student said no? How could you persuade them to believe that it would be yes? Um, so kind of having that, them being able to expand on their ideas more and know that they're not just saying yes because they can, um, mm-hmm. but because they know why. I think it just depends on the context. It's hard to say that one type of question is always good or always bad. For example, a research question. Shahi, you're taking the research class now, right? Um, And in fact, the reading we have for next week talks about research questions and they say, yes, don't ask yes or no questions. Um, (laughs) And I think if you're you're talking about research questions or like if it's a question that you want to send out to a a participant, then generally you you would hear people say, don't ask yes or no question because unless you are just looking for a yes and no binary kind of thing, otherwise you should avoid that. So I think in that particular context, it would make sense not to use it. The reading did say that you can, for essential questions, you can ask interesting and provocative yes and no questions that don't have an easy answer without some justification. Yeah, Um, I know. I remember, yeah, I remember I did highlight where they asked our numbers real. I definitely, (laughs) I highlighted that one as a math person. But I think that some students, if I definitely asked that in my classroom, would just say yes because they would just automatically think that. But again, all of those questions that they presented within the reading, you can juxtapose them with something else. So I would say, okay, let's take, if I give you the answer of three I, where I is an imaginary number, how is that real? You know, so kind of having that discussion or even like, is punctuation necessary? I feel like an English person uh, would be able to kind of have that discussion where they could put up a full paragraph with no punctuation and would it make any sense to you as a reader? Um, So I feel like, these are all yes or no questions, but they have to be built upon. Right. I mean, presumably, if if you were to ask, are, are numbers real and a student says yes, then you could always follow up. Like you said, you should follow up, but you can probably follow up with something that keeps prodding at them and ask them to think otherwise. Like, what do you mean by that? Right. Um, I think it's okay for the essential question to be a yes or no question if the answer is not obvious and requires justification. 
My question is, in this chapter, it told us a good UBD unit must begin with clearly design essential question that have no simple memorable answers, but can lead to thought, discussion, exploration, and more. So how can we make sure the essential question is both meaningful and invites critical thinking? I mean, it sounds like the larger challenge that we've all been talking about is how do we make these questions accessible, provoking thinking? And I mentioned earlier that it just comes with practice. And then the book talked about certain tests you can do on your questions to make sure that these are thoughtful, essential questions to ask. And like I said, it is really hard to ask questions. It's it's much harder than you would normally think. Teachers are often depicted as kind of having all the answers at the back of the book. But the reality is that it's not so easy to ask and frame really good questions. Questioning is definitely the most difficult part of um, teaching or training anybody um, because you want to, you don't want to give your answer away and you want to also make sure that they have the ability to kind of find the answer to the question if Mm. it has one or um, they can find their way there. But I know that when I've been observed by my supervisor or my chairperson or even just some of my mentor teachers within my experience, um, they've said that I had really good questions, but sometimes I needed to really think about asking more critical thinking questions. And every single person told me that it comes with time. Mm -hmm. So that there isn't really a specific formula. And you can really try to focus on different aspects and say, oh, maybe I could ask this instead or tweak a little piece of it. Mm -hmm. But that the more and more you practice it, like you were saying, and the more experience you get with it, the um, easier it comes while you're thinking of them. Are they referring to essential questions or just questions in general? For the most part, they emphasize questioning sequences, so be like making sure that you're able to question your students. Mm-hmm. I think they're they're more focused on they a lot of teachers will call it like an aim or something for the day of mm-hmm. what you're trying to get to, and that would typically be their essential question for the day. So I think that, but that the problem with that is a lot of times it's very content specific. So I wouldn't necessarily consider it essential um, because it doesn't overarch as much. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think that there's more of a focus on your questioning in general rather than the essential question. Bloom's taxonomy might be another place to help you start thinking about different kinds of questions you can ask. Typically, the low level questions would be more factual based, whereas the high level questions would be more thought-provoking and requires more critical and creative thinking. So was there anything else in the reading that you wanted to discuss? On page 112, they were talking about skill-focused areas. Mm. Um, So I was just curious, why do teachers believe, or some people believe, that essential questions don't work in skill-focused areas? I think the authors are trying to point out a potential misconception in more skill-based learning that essential questions won't apply because it's all about things being practical. And as long as you can perform something, then essential questions don't really apply because they might think that essential questions are typically more for things that are abstract and less to do with hands-on stuff and more to do with thinking. And that would be a misconception because they gave some examples of how essential questions do apply. And even with educational technology, when we talk about skills such as editing, video, and audio, there are essential questions that we need to think about, such as why do you want to frame something in a certain way or why do you want to edit something in a certain way? A few weeks back when we read the chapter on digital technologies, 
where Meyer talks about different ways of positioning text and audio, that would be a place where you could have essential questions. And I know Candice is a music teacher, and it would be really interesting to hear what she has to say about essential questions in her area of teaching. So uh, maybe we'll hear from her at some point. I know being in math is kind of a skill-focused area too. And mm-hmm. I know that I've, I have been required to uh, formulate essential questions in the past and think of them. And I do think I've had more of a difficulty thinking of them than maybe people in like a history course or a literature-based course. Um, so I, I understood kind of where it was coming from, but I always knew that I still had to do it. So I was just interested to think about how, why people would believe that you can't do it at all in a sense. I wouldn't have initially thought that math would be considered a skill kind of class in the sense of hands-on, but I think you make a good point. And there are a lot of amazing questions that you can ask in a math class. I know that some teachers will kind of brush off the questions that their students ask in order to get through content. So there might be one student in the class that has a question because they're not 100% sure of what's either what's happening or how it connects. Um, And a lot of times the teacher will be like, oh, we'll talk later, but won't really ever remake that connection. Um, And then doesn't that hurt the idea of inquiry or the idea of having these essential questions to focus for your students? I just, that was just something I thought of too. And within my own experience. Can you give an example without naming names? (laughs) Yeah, sure. Uh, Some of the classes that I'm in now, they're, again, they're double period math classes. And it's for a lot of the students that are weaker within the math content. Mm -hmm. Um, So they had that double period. So they have the extra time to get through the required content that some students would be able to get through in one period. So it's supposed to leave time for those extra questions Mm. um, and time for students to really understand and grasp the concept. However, I feel like it's turned into a situation in which they'll do two lessons in the two periods instead of doing one lesson over the two periods to really get the students to where they need to be. Mm. Um, And I know in some of the classes that I'm in, luckily I'm there. However, in the first half of the year, I wasn't. So the teacher will come up to me and tell me like, oh, I can't answer his questions anymore. He's so lost. He doesn't know what's going on. She's like, it's very helpful that you're here because you can pull him aside and answer his question. But I also think about, because I'm only there in that specific classroom twice a week. So what happens the other three days a week when I'm not in the classroom? Does this Mm. child then suffer because people don't want to address his questions because maybe maybe it's not the question that the teacher cared about for the unit. Maybe it's not the question that the teacher thought of prior to. Maybe that's part of it. So that's kind of what I was thinking about. And that's why it's really important to have formative assessments that you can do informally to check in to make sure that students are following along. And if there are questions, whether it's coming just from one student or a larger group, and if it's a larger group, maybe it's worth slowing down and recalibrating even if it means not moving at the pace you'd want. Or if it's just one student, then maybe there are things that the student can do outside of class that could help he or she catch up. It sounds like in your case, in the example you were describing, it sounds like they were trying to pack in a lot of stuff. Yes. Um, Or at least they they seem to be kind of racing to cover a a lot of things. And then, you know, it's always possible that like students ask questions just to waste time. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that I is think true. those questions are, are uh, and some students are very good at doing that. And uh, I think that those are will probably be ones that are uh, maybe more justified to brush off if you know that student <laughs> is wasting your time just so that they don't right. 
that you don't get to the quiz that, that, that they know you're about to hand them. Um, and maybe there are other ways that teachers can check students, whether they're understanding maybe more anonymously. We talked about exit tickets in the past so that they can just stay on top of what the students are learning and know what their instruction should look like and hopefully not brushing off the questions, as you said. So I think that about wraps up this episode. Our next topic would be assessments, which is super important. I'd like to thank Emily and Shahi for being guests for this episode. Thank you for having us. <laughs> thank you. I hope you enjoy what remains of your spring break, and I will talk to you soon. Bye.